Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Derek Lieben. He is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown. He works at the intersection of ethics, cognitive science and emerging technologies. In his new book, Ethics for Robots, Dr. Lieben argues for the use of a particular moral framework for designing autonomous systems based on the contractarianism of John Rawls. He also demonstrates how this framework can be productively applied to autonomous vehicles, medical technologies, and weapons systems. So, Dr. Lieben, thank you a lot for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So, uh, okay, so we're going to talk basically today about how we should build uh, ethical systems or ethical algorithms for several different kinds of robots and machines that are based on artificially intelligent systems. And I think that perhaps a good question to start off with would be, uh, what are the set of features that uh, these machines or these robots should have for us to really consider how we should program them ethically? Because I guess that perhaps certain types of machines and robots, we don't really have to worry about programming them to behave in an ethically appropriate way because that doesn't really matter. What, what sets the, the place where we should start worrying about that? Let's see. That's a good question. And you're exactly right that if we're dealing with certain kinds of machines that are not making complex kind of decisions, like say a Roomba vacuum that's navigating around your carpet picking up dust, that's not the kind of machine that is going to need to make moral decisions. Usually, when we talk about moral decisions, we mean some kind of action that has effects on the health, the opportunity, the resources of human beings. And increasingly, there are machines being developed now that are making these kinds of decisions. So you mentioned a few in the introduction. Autonomous vehicles, autonomous weapon systems, medical technologies, relatively autonomously now are going to be making choices that have effects on human, let's just call it well-being. That's a nice sort of general term for the kinds of effects that we care about in programming a moral machine. Mm -hmm. Right, so basically anything that can have some sort of positive or negative effect on humans. That's exactly right. And usually I focus on, in the book, the kinds of machines that are embodied and moving around in the world. But, of course, there are algorithms, disembodied algorithms, being used more and more that have important effects on human well-being. So, for instance, in the criminal justice system in the United States and many other countries, unfortunately, there are many algorithms being used now for risk assessment. And these have consequences for whether people in jail have qualifications for parole or bail. There are algorithms being used to determine whether people receive mortgages, whether they receive uh, approvals on their applications for admission to universities. And increasingly, these are the kinds of algorithms and systems that need to be programmed with some kind of decision procedure for exactly what counts as acceptable outputs and unacceptable outputs. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know to what extent this is going to lead us off on a tangent or not, but in your book you also explore this topic and I think it's uh, also good for us to dig into it a little bit for to set up the rest of the conversation here. Uh, that has to do with, uh, okay, so when we talk about ethics and morality, uh, one of the issues here is really if there is any way for us to establish a moral system objectively, if there's any way for us to do that. And because I've been talking on my show with a lot of evolutionary psychologists, for example, uh, and I've had recently also a philosopher, Dr. Stephen D. Hales, 
who has a very interesting article where he basically says that we have uh, different evolved mental mechanisms to solve moral problems or problems of how to deal with other people that predispose us toward conflicting uh, moral systems or systems of morality in the sense that some of them predispose us to prefer perhaps an agent-centered morality and others uh, pull us toward an agent-neutral morality. So, I mean, fr strictly from an evolutionary perspective, it seems that we have all of these sorts of uh, conflicting mental mechanisms that we have evolved and it doesn't seem to me that we have any sort of, of objective way to solve this issue. But is there any, any other way to do it? Or do we have to set for moral relativism? Good. And it might be the case that moral relativism is correct. And I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. A lot of very intelligent people have made very persuasive arguments for this position. But let's keep in mind what that would mean. That would mean that when programming machines to make these kinds of decisions, there's no kind of objective framework that one group or one culture can use to say, this is the kind of rule that's better than these other rules. Now, that might be the case. But I think there is a way of stepping back and having a kind of framework that is objective in the sense that we care about. And that's really the important issue. So the philosopher Dan Dennett has a book about free will, and the subtitle of it is called The Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting. Now, I think that's important when thinking about morality. There are lots of ways of defining morality. Now, some of them probably do not exist the kind of morality where you talk about a set of categorical imperatives, of, as Kant said, where, for instance, you must do some action regardless of any of your goals, your motivations, your background. I think that kind of thing simply does not exist. However, there might be another kind of morality that we could define that is objective in the sense that we care about or that is worth wanting. And it comes from thinking about things actually from an evolutionary standpoint. So I agree completely with the claim you made earlier that our evolved set of, let's call it, oh, moral grammars for making certain kinds of judgments about actions being permissible and impermissible, that these are conflicting often with each other. We often think that, well, here's one kind of reason for thinking that an action is acceptable, it creates more overall happiness, but on the other hand, it also seems to violate the rights of an individual. And so one way to step further back is by actually thinking about the evolutionary function of these systems. And so if you have many different competing cognitive mechanisms that evolve for a particular function, if they all shared the same function, and I propose that the function they serve is to promote cooperative behavior amongst self-interested organisms, then there is a way of abstracting away from those mechanisms and ask, what's the goal, what's the function that they are trying to accomplish here? And by doing that, we can actually say, there are many different kinds of mechanisms and many different kinds of principles that might effectively accomplish this goal, yet let's try to abstract away from them and look at what is the optimal way of accomplishing this function. And in that sense, that would provide us with an objective answer to the question of what is the best mechanism or best method of promoting cooperative behavior amongst self-interested organisms. Now, it's not objective in the sense of if humans did not exist, this would not exist. But it is objective in the sense that it's independent of our own preferences and beliefs and motivations. And I would argue that's the kind of morality that we care about. It's the kind of morality that enables me to say that slavery is morally wrong. And it doesn't matter if a particular person or culture wants to have slaves and doesn't think that slavery is morally wrong. I could still hold him or her accountable on the grounds that this is not an effective mechanism for producing cooperative behavior. Mm -hmm. So objective here doesn't really mean that 
It is something that exists outside of a framework created by subjects or people in this case. Uh, be because sometimes we use the word objective in that sense, right? But in mm -hmm. this case, objective is still something that completely depends uh, on what subjects uh, create or come up with. That's right. And that's a, exactly where we should go in this meta-ethical discussion is the question, what do we mean by objective here? Now, there are certain objective facts about the world that do not depend on humans at all. There are certain claims that depend on our attitudes and beliefs. And so, for instance, the American philosopher John Searle calls these conventional facts. So, for instance, if I say that... Um, Donald Trump is president of the United States, that's a fact by convention. If people did not believe that anymore, did not act as if that were true, it would no longer be true. However, there are some things that are in between, and we can call these, let's call them hypothetical claims that depend on human uh, interests and goals, but are independent of our attitudes about them for their truth. And so one analogy here is facts about human health. So there are certain facts about what's going to make a person healthy and unhealthy, regardless of what you believe. So if I believe that I can be healthy without sleeping or without drinking water or without eating, then I'm just mistaken about that. It's an objective fact that the kind of thing that I am, given the facts about human beings, it is a healthy choice to sleep and eat right and exercise. So these are called hypothetical imperatives where if you want to do X, there is an optimal way of doing it. And we say, here are some of the better and worse ways of accomplishing that. They are still anchored or dependent on certain facts about human beings and our goals and interests. But if we expand the scope of this broadly enough, then we can include, let's call them all human goals and interests, or any possible human goal and interest. This is a kind of move, once again, made by the philosopher Immanuel Kant, but also by certain contractarian philosophers like John Rawls, who says, let's imagine we could be anyone. What are the kinds of goals, the kinds of interests, the kinds of things that all humans care about? Now, these are objective in the sense that, or rather, the mechanism, the means for accomplishing these goals are objective in the sense that if you want opportunity, if you want health, there are certain better and worse ways of doing it. And if you say, I don't care about health, then you've simply escaped from the realm of morality. This is no longer a person that I can have a conversation with in the same way. But the goal should be, let's try to back up far enough so that we include the interests, the goals of any possible person that might engage with us. Mm -hmm. But isn't the issue there that people have to determine a set of goals that all people have to agree with uh, and that orient basically the rest of their moral system? That is, they have to have a set of moral axioms that they all agree with for them to really be able to progress because as you said at a certain point there if people simply decide that they don't care about that or if they prefer other things then that's still a problem that's right that would be a big problem and if it turns out that there are some kinds of agents that don't fall into this category of let's call them antecedents, where in a hypothetical you have something of the form if A then B. So if you want to be healthy, if you want human opportunity, if you want essential resources, then you should do the following. Imagine a group of people who simply don't care about those types of things, then they no longer fall into our group of, let's call them, moral agents and moral patients. And in fact, that would be a serious problem. That's why uh, Kant wanted to make sure that these kinds of antecedent conditions were something that applied to any possible agent. It was just, if you want to do anything at all, here are the necessary conditions. So he called these transcendental facts or transcendental arguments, and Rawls calls them primary goods. I think there's a good case to make that no matter what you want to do, 
you care about health and opportunity because it's simply impossible to accomplish any goal as a rational agent without these things. Now, if you can demonstrate, here's a rational agent who does not need to care about her own health and opportunity in order to accomplish these goals, then that would be a counterexample to my position here. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't another problem here be that uh, I mean, when we're trying to make decisions, if, even if we agree on the goals that we want to achieve, we have to deal with uh, information that influences us into uh, how we should arrive at those goals. I mean, we have to deal with facts about the world. But, I mean, different people with different preferences interpret the same facts in different ways, right? So, I mean... Uh, perhaps we get here into into the traditional is ought dichotomy, and so uh, do you think that that would also influence how we do morality and ethics? Certainly, and I think you need to make certain uh, let's call them qualifications for imperfect information. Certain moral theories do this better than others. So utilitarians are very good at saying that all of our judgments are completely qualified by the information that we have at the moment. So if I believe that doing this action is going to create more overall happiness for more people, then this is the right action to do at the moment, even if it turns out that information in retrospect was incomplete or incorrect. Right. And so a good moral theory should make certain qualifications for that and allow for imperfect information. Um, deontologists, at least some of them, can escape this altogether by saying that we don't care about thinking about how the world is. We only have to care about how the world ought to be. And so if you act with the right intentions or the right goals, then no matter what, this was the right action. So already these kinds of normative assumptions enter into the framework. But most versions of consequentialism are going to say, yes, you need to factor in not only our goals, but in addition, the kinds of information we have accessible to us. This is not really different from any version of decision theory, right? So in decision theory, an agent just moves around the world trying to maximize her goals conditional on the information that she has available to her. And so you could program a little machine to navigate around the environment trying to make its way towards a goal, and it only has access to the information in its environment and might say, well, this is the best path to navigate down, but it turns out that was a local maxima. It was not a global one. This was an incomplete path, and now it's trapped. Was this the right decision? It turns out it was, based on the information it had. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, you already alluded to things like game theory, and in your book, at a certain point, you sort of try to establish an object, objective mathematics-based approach to ethics. And at a certain point there, you say something like, and I'm going to quote you now, in addition to internal consistency, a moral theory should be evaluated by how effectively it produces universal Pareto improvements on Nash equilibria outcomes. I mean, there are a lot of uh, concepts here that perhaps some of them people don't understand, like Pareto improvements and Nash equilibria. Could you try to explain what you mean there? Yes, these concepts from game theory originated in the middle of the 20th century, and they've been slowly infusing their way into ethics over the last 70 years. So they're present in moral philosophers like John Rawls, like David Gautier, uh, like Ken Binmore, and I'm drawing on this kind of tradition. Really what I'm saying here is nothing original. I'm just putting it together in a in a, I think, concise way. So what a lot of these social contract theorists are getting at is that individuals who act self-interestedly can get very far. Self-interest is a very powerful mechanism. So 
in my book, I describe this couple who enjoys skydiving. They both prefer to skydive together than to skydive alone. And it turns out that there is a way of figuring out mathematically what the optimal uh, outcome is for these kinds of agents interacting with each other. It was developed by John Nash in the 1950s. And I describe it in the book. I don't have to go into the technical details of it. But in this scenario, um, what happens is both players acting in their own self-interest will wind up skydiving together because it's just the thing they most prefer. And it turns out that self-interest can get people very, very far. In fact, some libertarians would say that, well, why do we even need ethics at all? Because everyone acting in his or her own self-interest can produce the best outcomes for a society. In fact, you might read the novelist and philosopher Ayn Rand as making this kind of argument. However, there are certain cases, and the prisoner's dilemma is the most famous of them, where agents acting in their own self-interest lead to outcomes. And by lead to, I mean the Nash equilibrium results in an outcome where they actually could both be better off in another kind of scenario. If they were to cooperate, there would be better outcomes for both of them. But it turns out that there's too much risk in cooperating for either of them to chance it. And so there needs to be some kind of mechanism to push both of them from this Nash equilibrium into what's called a Pareto improvement. A Pareto improvement is named after the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, who pointed out that there are some conditions in which everyone can be improved or made better off, or at least one person can be made better off without anyone being made worse off. So if I eat all of my dinner and I'm full, but there's still a little left and you're very hungry next to me, it is a Pareto improvement for me to give you the leftovers that I have instead of just throwing them away. It does, it makes you better off. It doesn't make me any worse off. And so a lot of these social contract theorists, and I would argue going back to Thomas Hobbes, are trying to get at this idea that self-interest is very powerful, but it's not powerful enough. And game theory can give us some formal tools for showing here's when self-interest will give us a Pareto optimal result, and here are some cases in which self-interest will not give us a Pareto optimal result. And we might expect that over the course of evolutionary time that there would be mechanisms that develop to push agents towards this kind of Pareto improvement. And that's what I propose. And I'm not alone here. I'm drawing on a long tradition that actually goes back to Charles Darwin in The Descent of Man. That's the function for moral judgments and moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now getting specifically into contractarianism, you've already referred the component of self-interest, uh, and in your book you also refer to other things that is a set of primary goods that are equally valued by all the players, and the third one, a principle for choosing from among possible distributions of primary goods, called Maximin. So could you expand on what you mean by these three basic components? Good. So this brings together two of the things that we've talked about. The first thing we talked about was this uh, moral objectivity, looking for some kind of objective basis, some objective goals that we all share, that we can draw on. And the second thing we talked about are these concepts from game theory where you could have Pareto improvements on Nash equilibria. Bringing those two ideas together, Maximin, I propose, is a strategy that will always produce Pareto improvements from Nash equilibria, and thus it is an optimal solution to the kind of problem that moral judgments have evolved to solve. Now, if that is correct, then we can use it as an objective framework for actually comparing different moral principles and designing a moral machine. Maximin just means that you maximize the minimum. You take the worst outcome in every action and you essentially rank them according to their worst case scenario and pick the best of the worst. Now, if you're dealing with or sorry, non-cooperative games and game theory, then Maximin and another formula called Minimax are equivalent. But in this kind of scenario, they are not necessarily equivalent. And so what we want to do is 
make the worst off person as best off as possible. This is what is often called prioritarianism in social and political philosophy. And you could think about it as a principle for designing societies. But here, I'm thinking about it as a moral principle. Look at the effects of all of our actions. And the effects not on anything, not on happiness and suffering, as utilitarians say, but the effects on primary goods. Uh, John Rawls called primary goods the kinds of things that all human beings care about. And it gets to what you were saying earlier, which is it's hard to make a case for exactly why we should maximize happiness and suffering. But it's easy to make a case for why we should maximize primary goods because all of us care about them by definition. Primary goods just are the kinds of things that all people care about. And so if primary goods are objective, they're the objective basis for a moral theory, and maximin is the optimal way of promoting cooperative behavior, then we put these two things together and the moral theory says that you should maximize the worst case outcomes for primary goods for agents. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I would like to ask you to what extent should we program discrimination into the robots or the machines? And I'm not, I'm not talking specifically about negative discrimination in terms of uh, perhaps punishing certain people just because of their race or gender or ethnicity or whatever, but perhaps there are some cases where it would be favorable for people to be discriminated positively in the sense that perhaps there are certain people that are of lower socioeconomic status or perhaps statistically speaking people from certain races uh, are discriminated not by machines but perhaps by t by other people so to what extent should we program po positive discrimination into the algorithms right and you're being very clear here about these different senses of discriminating. So you could talk about discriminating in a very neutral way, where discriminating just means being able to categorize one object as being different from other objects. And obviously, we want machines and people to be able to do this, not just for practical purpose. If we have my uh, self-driving car navigating around the streets, I want it to be able to tell the difference between a pedestrian and a mailbox. But we also might want to program into machines certain finer-grained categories. And the question is, what is acceptable to use as the basis for these categories? What kind of information? That's the question you're asking. And I think this is exactly the right kinds of question. And so these all have normative assumptions. And this is exactly where the rubber meets the road, where the theory that we've been discussing starts to meet the actual engineering. So if you talk to engineers who are designing machines, they might say, well, why do I have to care about all of this stuff about ethics? Well, if you are designing the machine to categorize one object as being different from another, we have to ask, should it care about the differences between animals and objects? Some moral theories are going to say that animals have moral value. Some of them are going to say they have more va value than other objects or other animals. And so that's a decision you have to make. Is the machine going to distinguish, say, a deer from a mailbox and a deer from a human? Now, that's a moral choice we have to make. Now, within the category of humans, as you're pointing out, we could also distinguish more finer-grained categories. Everybody's going to agree. Well, not initially. You might point out that if we're talking about some kind of positive or let's call it affirmative action, as they call it here in the U.S., that you might want to pick out certain categories of historically oppressed or historically underrepresented people in order to take that into account for uh, your distribution rule. Now let's come back to that in a moment. At least initially in an ideal society, you might think that race and gender uh, and religious beliefs are the kind of information that should not be uh, put into our categorization scheme. That it should not be making decisions about the distribution of resources or health or opportunity based on that information. And there's good reason for thinking that, namely because it's irrelevant to exactly the distribution of these kinds of goods. According to Rawls, if you could be anyone, and this is what we mean by cooperative behavior, 
I imagine I could be anyone. I could also be someone who is Muslim or Christian or Buddhist. I could be someone who's male or female or transgender. I could be somebody who is tall or short, fat or thin. And so this kind of information is irrelevant to the system. Uh, this is important because there was a fairly famous uh, experiment run by the MIT Media Lab last year where they asked people to evaluate these kinds of trolley problems with self-driving cars and they manipulated information about whether people are male or female or fat or thin. And it's important to note that from a moral perspective, almost every theory is going to agree that that information is irrelevant. Now, of course, when it comes to the, the difficulty of historically underrepresented groups, as you mentioned, that's a very difficult problem. John Rawls himself was against affirmative action on the grounds that when making moral choices, we have to abstract away from the history of our society and instead only act as if we were living in a kind of ideal society. However, I think there are good arguments for factoring this kind of information into account in our original position choice as well. So my answer to that is that's an extremely hard problem. But leading up to it, there are easier problems that we can manage. So I would say on the, on the issue of discrimination, uh, affirmative action or positive discrimination is like the end of the book. <laughs> Let's get there. Let's get there when we get there. But towards the, the beginning and the middle of the book are, let's say, humans versus animals versus objects, and then uh, these kinds of categories like age. And I actually do argue in a forthcoming paper this summer that age can be a relevant factor in making certain kinds of choices if it's going to have an effect on primary goods. So here's a basic case that younger people or very young people and very old people are more vulnerable in car crashes. They're more likely to be injured. And so that could be a reason for programming age into a self-driving vehicle when it's evaluating collisions, is that it just cares about what is the severity of this collision going to be. However, age, I argue, is not a relevant factor in making judgments in the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, a lot of the algorithms being used to assess risk are using age as a factor, not because age is programmed in, but because it's a pattern that emerges from the data. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me ask you now this, because uh, it seems to me that specifically talking about uh, self-driving cars, uh, would it be or could it be in any way beneficial for us to have different companies creating different systems of self-driving cars based on different ethical systems? Like, for example, if Google were to create a system based on contractarianism and Apple then would create a system based on Kantian ethics and Tesla on utilitarian ethics and so on and so forth for them to release them all on the market and then uh, over time people would have different systems on the road making different types of decisions and then uh, the users themselves and the market would with out it uh, by itself the worst solutions and i mean through a process of so, uh, some sort of social selection, let's say, we would arrive at the best system to have on the road. I mean, would that be in any way beneficial for us to decide really what would be the best ethical system to have programmed into a self-driving car? This is an important issue, and I think in the next 10 years, this is going to be something that... Um, the societies developing self-driving cars are going to have to figure out. Uh, I'm very worried about this. I'm very worried and I'm very skeptical that having different fleets of vehicles, each with their own moral principles for evaluating collisions, uh, is going to work out for the best. It could be the case. It could be the case. I'm open to it. It might be the case that imagine you have Mercedes and Volvo and Google and they all have their own principles for evaluating um, collisions. Some of them evaluate them based on more utilitarian principles. Some of them use these more maximum principles that I'm advocating. Some of them use more libertarian, protect the 
agent vehicle at all costs. Some of them use more Kantian ones where they don't swerve or accelerate, but they only slow down and stop. So you could imagine all these different principles grounded in different moral theories. And here's, here's two possibilities, or three. Uh, one of them is that it's disastrous, uh, and it results in a lot of harm that didn't need to happen. Uh, another is that it's actually optimal and having many different vehicles with their different moral principles is actually a lot like having many different agents with their own moral theories interacting and it works out well. Um, and so another is the one that you mentioned where you have a kind of social experiment where some of them don't work and some of them work and over time people just buy the vehicles that have the moral principles that work. Now, all of those are possible, and I don't know which one is going to happen. Um, but if we decide to go forward with this as a social experiment, then just in terms of research ethics, this could be an extremely disastrous outcome for our societies, right? We could wind up with many, many injuries and fatalities that did not need to happen. I think the solution to that is... I was going to say putting on the brakes, but I didn't mean for that to be a pun. Um, the solution to that is slowing down the development of autonomous vehicles and doing more testing in simulations and in small-scale environments. So what I'm advocating is simulation work, and there's a lot of companies, a lot of companies that are doing this right now, simulating vehicle behavior uh, in safe environments with different kinds of principles for safety. This is something that I'm actually advocating and I'm trying to encourage companies to do right now. And maybe I'm going to be uh, teaming up with some companies who are working on this um, to try and before the vehicles actually get out there on the streets to look at what would happen if we had a fleet of utilitarian vehicles, what would happen if we had a fleet of Kantian vehicles? What would happen if we had a mixture of all of these things? What would the effects look like? And I'm just worried that things are moving so fast in the industry that there's not going to be time. And eventually we're going to have a kind of either scenario one or scenario three that I talked about, where it's either a disaster or it's a big social experiment that didn't need to happen. Mm -hmm. So you really do think that it's very likely that we will have to go through that process of social selection because people don't seem to be very motivated to arrive at a basic set of ethical algorithm, algorithms to program worldwide, let's say. And it's very easy for me to imagine that, for example, if you have a manufacturer in the US and another one in Japan and another one in China and so on and so forth, that even due to uh, cultural variability that people would prefer certain kinds of ethical systems and if, for example, the Chinese would deploy um, driverless cars only in their country and all of them are programmed with, for example, Kantian ethics, perhaps that wouldn't be much of a problem. But if they are commercialized worldwide and we have conflicting ethical systems, then that would be more difficult. That's exactly right. And I'm worried about this. And you're pointing out all the, the political challenges to this. I think there are serious political challenges and economic ones as well. So the economic challenges are that you have all of these companies racing to the finish line right now. And there's no incentive for them to slow down and work on their, their safety research, much less think about what ethics would look like in these systems. Although I would argue that ethics and safety in this kind of scenario can't be separated from each other. It's impossible because uh, these companies all say, well, we care about safety, but safety has different meanings in these different kinds of moral theories. And it, safety is a theoretical term that you're implying, and it depends on which moral theory you're using to evaluate what is a safe autonomous vehicle. So these are the economic challenges, but you're also pointing out the political challenges. Namely, if I say, well, we're going to regulate the vehicles. Let's say I'm able to lobby uh, the EU and the United States Congress and all sorts of regulatory bodies, and they implement a set of principles and say, we, you must use Maximin 
in evaluating collisions or something like that. I, I don't know if that would ever happen. But even if that did happen, you're right. You're pointing out there's all sorts of other uh, political environments where they might reject that or they might develop their own principles. And having every manufacturer and every software developer in the world get on board with this single set of principles is economically and politically extremely difficult, to say the least. Right, right. And what do you think about certain statements that people make, like, for example, when they uh, when they refer to the number of fatalities that we have around the world due to car crashes, and then they say, oh, we have such a huge number of these problems going around. Uh, should we really care that much about the set of ethical principles that we program into the vehicles? Wouldn't they... Uh, lead to less car crashes and less fatalities, whatever the set of uh, moral principles that they have programmed into them, just because in principle they, will, they would always work better or function better than human beings driving them. What do you think about that? That's an interesting argument, and I'm, I'm open to that. I think that's a very good case to make for developing self-driving cars and an urgency about them. So for instance, uh, Chris Ermson, one of the early developers at Google's self-driving car division, uh, has made this case a lot. He made it in his TED talk that uh, if you talk about tens of thousands of people in every country dying on the roads every year, this is an emergency, uh, if you think of it as preventable. And what's interesting is that human beings never thought about this as preventable until very recently. And once you start thinking about these harms as unnecessary harms, they take on a very different aspect to them altogether. Um, so I think that's a good argument. The best kind of argument I could see for, for rushing the technology, even if it's not perfected, even if we don't have a a perfect set of guidelines for what counts as safe autonomous vehicles. All that matters is you might say they're safer than humans, right? I think that's an interesting case you could make. I would still make the case for pushing hard to make them as safe as possible. Now, obviously, if you're developing any kind of technology, a military technology, a medical technology, and you say this is better than the technology we have, that's a very good reason for developing it. But if you say, well, we could spend a little more time and make it even more safe or even more better, this is a serious problem. This actually comes up quite often in medical research, uh, which is when you're developing a new kind of vaccine or a new kind of treatment, exactly how much more effective does it need to be than the current treatment to require us to implement it right now versus do more research and make sure it could be better or it could be safer. I was recently reading about the uh, polio vaccine, which was developed here or partially here in the University of Pittsburgh by Jonas Salk. And this was a real question that they faced in the 1940s and 50s in the U.S., which is every summer uh, there are thousands of children being paralyzed and in some cases killed by this terrible disease. And we have the potential to develop a vaccine that could eradicate it. But how much risk are we willing to subject the children of Pittsburgh in the public schools to in order to test this vaccine? How much risk are we willing to subject people to in order to implement it? Is it just, well, this is going to save more overall lives? Or is it from a general framework of, I don't want to implement something new that is going to cause harm as opposed to allowing harm that is foreseeable, but that I'm not responsible for. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another question here is, uh, to what extent do you think that we should allow people to, uh, to personalize the settings of their, for example, self-driving car? Because it could come uh, programmed with some sort of ethical system and then, for example, if the user wouldn't like that and if uh, they wouldn't want to be sacrificed in any sort of situation, whatever the person that the car would hit in front of them, for example, then 
they, for example, would have access to the settings and they could change them or not? Do you think that we should allow people to do that? Or from the moment we decide on a set of ethical principles, we shouldn't allow people to change the settings? Good. I'm a lot more inclined to think we should not allow people to change the settings. But it, it's an empirical question, believe it or not. It depends on whether allowing people to change the settings. And by that, I just mean having a lot of vehicles with very different moral principles navigating around an environment, whether that's going to have better or worse consequences for cooperative <coughs> behavior. Excuse me. So we can test this in a simulation and say, imagine we have a society of people, each with their own different preferences programmed into these vehicles, what are the outcomes of that? If it turns out the outcomes of that scenario are no different from having a whole fleet of government-regulated utilitarian vehicles or government-regulated maximum vehicles, then I would be open to saying, yeah, let people do it. I have no reason to be opposed to it because I've seen empirically that the effects according to maximum are the same. But if you show me in these kinds of simulations that the effects are disastrous, in terms of maximin evaluations, that the worst kinds of harms are much, much more uh, frequent than in government regulation, then I would be in favor of that. So my ultimate answer is, it's an empirical question that can be and should be evaluated in simulations. I don't know what the answer is going to be. I'm a lot, I'm a lot more suspicious of having everyone program their own preferences into the vehicles than having all of them uniformly programmed with a setting that can't be changed. Mm -hmm. So I think that this gives us a good segue into uh, talking an, about another kind of robot or machine that is care bots or robots that would provide health care to people. Because in this case, we were talking about people deciding to change the settings of their driverless vehicles. But uh, when it comes to the healthcare system, there's this issue about consent. I mean, even if the care bot decided on the best course of action or treatment for a particular person, then we should always give the person the possibility of refusing it, right? Right. Yes, and the reason why, well, there are two reasons why consent is more important in the domain of medicine than it is in the domain of transportation and evaluating collisions. Uh, the first of which is just time, which is when you're making split-second decisions about vehicle collisions, you're not going to have the time to actually check with people and ask, whoa, do you agree to this? Do you consent to it? Because it might be the case that if you had enough time that one group of people or one pedestrian would say, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to save these other people. But let me just interrupt you there very quickly, because that's a very interesting point, because whenever we we give people these games, for example, like the MIT game for them to decide if they should kill the driver or the pedestrian and, and so on and so forth. That's a very crucial issue here, is that it does not really represent a real life situation because people there have all the time they want to decide on whatever the course of action they would prefer, but in a real life situation, they really don't. It's basically just instinctive behavior, right? Yes, and there are some groups that are working on this, groups of social scientists. Some of them are working at universities, some of them at companies. There's a lab at Stanford, uh, and there's a group at a UK-based autonomous vehicle company, Catapult, that are measuring more physiological, real-time decisions that people make in these kinds of scenarios. So they put them in uh, things that look kind of like flight simulators that pilots go in and they have them actually drive around or act as if they're driving around and have to make these kinds of split-second decisions. So you can do this more realistically, but the problem with that is that in real time, you can't go to every single person who's affected by the decision and ask, are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? Do you prefer this? Is this what you prefer? And so instead, what I suggest is we have a set of defaults, which are just here are the outcomes for your primary goods, and we'll assume that you care about health, about opportunity, about 
um, essential resources because everyone does. And these are the defaults. Now, if I had more time, ideally, I would like to go to every person and say, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this ranking? Do you agree with this set of values that I've assigned for your outcomes? And if she doesn't agree with it, then I would modify things. So in medicine, one thing we can do, because we have time, usually, and emergency medicine is, of course, an exception, and that's why very often bioethics principles in emergency medicine are different from bioethics principles in uh, non-emergency scenarios. Um, so in, in non-emergency medicine, uh, consent is so important because you can go in and say, look, do you agree with this? Is this the kind of ranking that, that you would assign to your outcomes as well? So that's the first reason why consent is so much more important in medicine. The second reason is that very often in medicine, the patient is the only person affected here. Now, that's a bit of a simplification, but certainly more in these kinds of moral dilemma cases where you have to sacrifice one group in order to save another group. In medicine, you're just dealing with the patient. Now, of course, there are family and friends who are affected, but at least in a very simplistic view of things that consent is most important here or more important here because if the patient doesn't agree with the distributions that you've assigned to her as um, a ranking set so you say uh, i've assumed that you prefer to have a surgery over chemotherapy and if she says no i would prefer chemotherapy over surgery well then that just is her preference ranking her reporting of it is just exactly what her outcomes are. And that's very different from other kinds of cases where I have to actually manage other people's preferences as well. In the, in the case of medicine, it's, it's much more important because it's more central to the measurement itself. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, earlier in the interview, we were talking about the issue of discrimination, particularly positive discrimination. And I think that it is also important for us to bring that issue to the table when we're talking about other kinds of robots like police bots, judge, judge bots and soldier bots. Because, I mean, in that, in those sorts of situations where we're, you are trying to evaluate how you should punish people or how we, you should direct resources into fighting crime and who, who you should go after, let's say. It's a very tricky situation because, in fact, we have uh, statistics about the sorts of, for example, races that commit more or less of this and that type of crime, for example. And, I mean, in a way, I guess that it is useful, useful for police to have access to those data and to use them in order to decide where to put their resources and how to best fight crime. But on the other end, it seems to me that when it comes to humans, at least, I'm not sure if that would happen with robots or not and to what extent, but that people sometimes are influenced by those statistics negatively and perhaps they persecute more easily certain types of people when in comparison with other types and things like that. So, um, I mean, how should we think about that? This is something that is happening right now in the use of algorithms in the criminal justice system, in policing, um, possibly in military applications, although less so. And so in the book, I describe an example from the U.S. of an algorithm used by, I think, five or six states at this point called Compass, which is supposed to predict... Uh, recidivism rates amongst uh, prisoners who are eligible for parole. And more and more these kinds of algorithms are used ostensibly to minimize bias. The argument is, look, human beings are vulnerable to all these sorts of biases, and so let's implement an algorithm that can be more objective, more fair. And I think that's a good argument for using them. However, many of them use techniques like machine learning techniques 
where they are trained over a large amount of data that human beings are actually producing. They're based on human judgments. So how you would train a machine learning algorithm to make parole judgments is you just take a bunch of data about parole cases from the past that human beings, human parole boards have made, and you say, okay, uh, let's train it so that eventually it gives the right kinds of predictions where it says yes to the cases that humans have said yes to, it says no to the kinds of cases that humans have said no to, and it draws on patterns in the data to try to make those kinds of judgments. Now the patterns in the data are hopefully the kinds of patterns you want it to care about, but very often the patterns in the data are going to be surprising and strange and uh, correlated with all sorts of things that you don't want them to care about, like race, and maybe like age as well. So age is a difficult problem here. So everyone agrees that race is something that should not be used in these kinds of algorithms. But age is difficult because it's a statistical predictor of violent behavior in a very important way. Um, it's not controversial at all that young people commit more violent crimes than old people. And so if you are evaluating whether this person is more likely to commit a violent crime, if you release her, then age, you, may, you might think, is a statistical predictor that we should care about. However, an important question is whether that counts as a kind of discrimination, even if it's a good statistical predictor. Now, with race, obviously, the issue is that the statistical predictor is correlated with all sorts of other things that it's not that race is predicting violent behavior because this racial group is more violent. It's rather because of the kinds of social history, the historical oppression that this group has been vulnerable to. But with age, it's a very difficult story, and there is an argument for actually including age. And so in this, in this paper that I'm, I'm coming out with in the summertime, I'm making a, a controversial claim, one that actually surprises me a little bit, which is that age should not be a factor, even though it's a very good, very strong predictor of uh, violent behavior, that it's a kind of discrimination to include that, because essentially what I'm doing is I'm saying, you're a member of this group, and therefore I'm going to deprive you of goods, not based on your own behavior, not based on your history, but rather just based on your membership in that group, even if that is a good predictor of your behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just one last question then, and this is a more general question, but uh, I mean, whenever we think about uh, how we should program cars or judge bots or whatever, uh, we do a lot of thought experiments, basically, particularly in philosophy. And I guess that another sort of thought experiments that people have access to are the ones that are portrayed in fiction, particularly in science fiction. So to what extent do you think that uh, people perhaps should be a little bit more careful about how they portray um, robots and machines and particularly AI systems in fiction because of the pernicious ways that sometimes those portrayals might influence people and then perhaps their decisions about how to deal with those sorts of technologies. And by the way, if you think that they are pernicious, but because you, you might not think so, I don't know. That's a good question. I've, I've thought about this a lot because I love the portrayal of machines and artificial intelligence in science fiction. And in a lot of ways, that has led the way towards engineering and computer science a lot of the time. If you watch the two, uh, film 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, a lot of that technology are, uh, were, were, was fantastic at the time, but essentially they were doing what we're doing right now. They were doing Skype, uh, but in 1968 and a version of that. And, and so it's, it's wonderful and to see uh, technology in fiction, in novels, in, in film, um, not just because it leads the way for new science, but also because, like you said, it allows us to think through a lot of the social and moral problems that might be raised by this before it actually arrives. So the robot novels by Isaac Asimov, the, the iRobot trilogy, um, are a way, in, in some sense, of exploring these rules that he develops for robots 
uh, and showing here's how they might fail, here's how they might break down. So like I said about self-driving vehicles and simulating them before we actually put them out on the roads, fiction is a wonderful way to collectively actually experiment with uh, thinking about these problems before it arrives. Um, now, so in that sense, I'm not opposed to it. I, I don't think it's it's harmful or pernicious. But one way it might be damaging is that most of the portrayals of artificial intelligence in fiction until very recently have been portraying it as something damaging, harmful, destructive, and sometimes hostile to humans. Right. So... Uh, every time there's an artificial intelligence system in in a sci-fi movie, well, not every time, but but it's it's very often hostile. Um, there are some exceptions to this. So especially recently, if you watch, say, Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar, the entire time I watched that movie, I was wondering when are these robots going to go crazy and kill everybody? <laughs> and they never they never did. They were always friendly. They were always helpful. They were they were heroes. At the end, one of the robots actually sacrificed himself to save Matthew McConaughey. Uh, and who wouldn't do that? So I think it is important to have a kind of balance in fiction where you have not just skepticism and pessimism of the kind you see in maybe Black Mirror, which is almost exclusively uh, technophobic, but also explore the range of fiction that is enthusiastic about the possibilities for technology to make us better. And ultimately, the reason why I care about artificial intelligence and robots is because it has tremendous opportunity to make us better people, to make us uh, uh, not just happier, but more cooperative and maybe better moral agents. Mm -hmm. So it has basically to be a balanced portrayal, right? B both depicting the positive and the negative aspects of technology. Because, I, I mean, you refer to Black Mirror, and it really seems to me that sometimes perhaps Charlie Brooker takes it a little bit too far and is right. overly pessimistic. And particularly when it comes to AI systems, the issue of anthropomorphization. I mean, and because, I mean, we, we in some way project ourselves into what looks like a human being. And of course, if that piece of technology would have the same psychology as we do, because it's so powerful, of course, uh, uh, probabilistically speaking, it, it would do that to other human beings. But on the other end, we also have to take into account that perhaps we are exaggerating a little bit there and we couldn't even be sure about the types of psychology that uh, highly advanced system of artificial intelligence would have, for example, right? Yes, and I'm more or less agnostic about the, um, let's just say, the imminence of general artificial intelligence as something that we need to be concerned about. Um, I think it might be a problem at some point, but until then, before we get to general artificial intelligence, we are definitely going to be inhabiting a world that's more and more filled with these kinds of narrow AI systems, these kinds of embodied robots that are moving around, that are doing our housework, that are driving us around, that are doing our jobs in a lot of cases. I mean, a lot of my work is grading papers and doing research. I'm not so arrogant as to think that can't be automized, automated, and it probably will be very soon. Most of our jobs are things that can be and will be automated. Uh, and so this is something that I think we'll need to think about sooner than we need to think about what the psychology of artificial intelligence systems is going to be. <laughs> That's more realistic, I think. And in fact, I haven't seen a lot of fiction dealing with this. I can't think of many fiction dealing, uh, many, many fiction that deals with, let's call it the future without work. It's something that a lot of uh, nonfiction authors have been writing about recently. But there's not a lot of fiction that deals with this world in which we achieve a technical utopia and then we need to figure out sort of what to do with ourselves. So aspiring, aspiring screenwriters and authors, if you're listening to this, it's a, it's a niche that needs to be filled. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, in the near future, I will be talking with Patrick Lee Miller about Black Mirror, so we will do a whole episode on that. So let's leave it at, at this today. And before we go, Dr. Lieben, would you like to tell people what would be some of the best places on the internet for them to follow your work? Yes, I can be found on Twitter at, at ethics for robots and I promise I only tweet about ethics for robots stuff. Uh, it's always positive, never sad or mean, um, unless it's sad or mean robot stuff, but only robot stuff. Uh, you can purchase my book on Amazon. You can find me, uh, my papers that I've written on my website, you just Google my name. Uh, and that's, that's about it. Okay, great. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of the video for people to go and check it out. It's a very interesting work. And by the way, I really loved your book. So I also recommend it to all listeners and viewers. And Dr. Lieben, again, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk to you. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Thank you very much. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Ryan Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condreano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervoz, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.